the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It was the seventh inning of Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. The Cubs were up 6-3, to three, you might recall, and at that point they were going to bring in their relief pitcher, Aroldis Chapman, to come in and close out the final outs, securing their first World Series win in over 100 years. But he didn't close it out. In fact, he gave up two doubles and two home runs, and quickly the game was tied as the Indians weren't going to go down without a fight. Thankfully, weather intervened as the Cub faithful wondered if the curse was still going to hold its grip over the Cub nation. The weather picked up, the rain came in, and the grounds crew had to roll out the tarp on progressive field as everyone waited with anticipation for the 10th inning. The despair was palpable in the Cubs' dugout as the players were wrestling with if they were going to have another wheels-off moment like they had had so many times before. One of their right fielders, uh, Jason Hayward, actually rallied the troops. He gave this wonderful, remember who we are kind of rally cry in the dugout before they went back on the field, reminding them that they had been one of the best teams throughout the regular season. They had won throughout the playoffs, and they would clawed their way back from defeat, forcing a seventh game in the World Series and telling them it's as much ours to win as it is ours to lose. Reinvigorated, they went out, and as history tells us, they closed out in the 10th inning uh, what was needed to secure their first World Series win in a hundred and, what was it, eight years, I believe, um, that they had gone in that drought. All because they needed to remember who they were and get beyond this idea that this curse had some grip on them. In many ways, it's fitting. As we begin Lent, we need to remember not who we are, but whose we are. As far as we remember and see in Genesis this morning, as Paul writes in Romans, as far as the curse, a different curse, the curse of sin and death was found, it had its grip over creation itself until Jesus stepped onto the scene and broke its hold by his death upon the cross. And so we begin this 40-day journey to remember that we are called not just to remember whose we are, but to embrace that more fully. And as that rather lengthy opening litany reminds us, there are so many things that we didn't even have listed there that get their hooks in to try to define us and redefine us otherwise so that we might forget and even leave behind whose we are in Christ Jesus. But whose we are in Christ Jesus by faith and through the waters of baptism because of Jesus' work for us on the cross makes us sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so as fitting, on the first Sunday of Lent, we annually read Jesus' temptation because we are reminded of, of three, at least as they are um, in most of the Gospels, three specific temptations that are rather universal. And Jesus gives us the way out to find the way out so that we don't just remember whose we are, but we can fully embrace that as the people of God. So let's look at that this morning. Back in Matthew uh, chapter 4, 
as we go through and look at three temptations we can identify with and then three ways out with each that Jesus gives us. Verses 1 and 2 will park. They could be individually, those verses, two sermons unto themselves. Jesus was led for our sake by the Spirit into the wilderness for this very purpose, to be tempted by the devil. That's the reason he goes out. There's a, there's a whole teaching unto itself about who Jesus is and why he came. Um, and then secondly, in verse 2, which is a good one to note as well, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, it's then that the tempter comes. It's not during. It's not while he's hungry. It's not while he draws near to the Lord. It's on the heels of that that the tempter comes. Again, a whole nother, whole nother teaching for another day. But for our purposes, when the tempter shows up, he begins, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, in verse 3 and then again in verse 6, it almost has an accusatory tone. If you're the Son of God, it harkens back um, to, did God really say, which we read in Genesis as we open, of course he's the Son of God. In fact, if there's any doubt, all we have to do, if you had your Bible in front of you, is look one verse up from chapter 4, where God really did say, at the end of Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven, God the Father, says, this is my beloved Son. With him I'm well pleased. Of course he's the Son of God. But the nag, because the enemy has no real original tactics, is the same as it was from the very beginning. But thankfully, um, Jesus does not succumb to that same nagging and that temptation. If you are the Son of God, it comes, then prove it. Prove it. Produce something. Show us, if you will, is where verse 3 begins. You're hungry. It's obvious. Produce some bread. Show us that you're the Son of God. Call these things into being. Make something of this. And so prove who you are. And the temptation, not just then, but throughout Jesus' ministry, is to be productive, right? I mean, no sooner does he enter Galilee at the beginning of his ministry and he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, then the next morning he's away in prayer and the whole region is waiting for him to be healed. Hey, the disciples say, um, so what you started yesterday now continues and everybody wants to be healed. I mean, Jesus could have spent the whole of his earthly ministry just healing people, doing things, feeding the 5,000, taking care of the sick, binding up the wounded, but he knows his purpose and he has his face set upon Jerusalem from the very beginning and he never loses sight of that temptation. And I think that's something perhaps that we can all relate to. There's something within us and probably on steroids in American culture, um, that we like to be productive. Not just temporally, yes, um, but even spiritually. We, we can allow that to define our worth by what we do, how we produce, what we achieve, how others see us. Um, all those sorts of things feed into um, that, that, that desire. But thankfully, Jesus gives us the way out um, in a really simple way. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The way to combat productivity is to be present with the Lord. More than anything we could ever produce or do for the Lord, um, even the, the Martha moments where we want to serve him well-meaning and we're overly productive um, for him, what he often wants from us, as we looked at last week, is, is to just be present with him. 
And when we're fully present with him, that's more productive than anything we could produce or uh, do or achieve even unto his name. Because it's there he gives us the direction and the clarity we need. And there if we walk with him, we don't run off too quickly to go after the doing even when we catch an inkling of what he might want to do. It's there that we often find um, who we are in him. So the way we combat this natural tendency to define ourselves by our worth and what we produce is to be present in the midst of the one who calls us each by name. And a closely related second temptation then follows. Verse 5, the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Again, that accusation, if you are the son of God, okay, I can't get you to get lost in defining yourself by what you produce. Um, But how about this? Um, Looking down on the temple mountain, all the people that are coming and going, of all the hustle and bustle below you, um, display your power, Jesus. Cast yourself off and display your power. It's a very subtle temptation. If Jesus casts himself off, again, if you are the Son of God, well, then we all know, as Scripture says, you can rally the angel armies to tend to you. And as you do so, everyone beneath you then sees who you are too. Take the shortcut. No cross, no dusty roads with disciples, no disputes with scribes and Pharisees. Just just do it. And when they see that, all of the religious leaders and everyone will fall on the line in that moment, and there you have it. You have everything you've sought to achieve. There's always the allure of power, right? In fact, that's what gets us into trouble in the first place. We read that this morning in our reading from Genesis. There's always that allure um, to be like God, to be God, and to be God in our own lives, in our own world, in our own sphere. And even we can tell ourselves, well-meaning, if I were in control, if I were in power, then I could do all these things better unto the Lord. And so we can kind of get wrapped into that at times too. It's an age-old temptation. Thankfully, Jesus breaks that cycle for our sake. It's such a simple way out that he shows us in verse 7. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The way out from power is perfect trust. Perfect trust not in ourselves or even in people in power that we're hoping to influence towards some end, but a perfect trust in God. As we're present with him, we we have to learn time and time again, right, to, to place our confident trust in him over and over with every situation, with every decision and every moment that we make. Some are easy and some are hard. Some we're prepared for with the big life moments and some totally catch us off guard. But in those times, as we learn uh, to put our perfect trust in him, it places that power back on God and not on ourselves or upon anyone else or trying to see how we can um, even try to control others who are in positions of power to bring about what we may think is best. But we get after that by getting after those times with the Lord. And so this inner work in these first two temptations are such that in this season of Lent, we spend the time or we create the space whereby we first put ourselves in his presence. Again, as we talked about last week, the the whole purpose of giving up things in Lent is to create the pockets of what we've given up so that we can do something with it. 
And in those times, we find ways to bring ourselves into God's presence and place our confident trust in Him. And what we're doing is, is retraining uh, kind of our deformed, if you will, identities that can get warped and shaped by so many things. Because the last of which kind of feeds into our ego, if you will, back in verse 8. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, emblematic of where we were just last week, up on a high mountain at the transfiguration. Again, the devil has nothing to play with other than what God's created, and so all he can do is mimic, mimic and mock. He can't actually do anything of his own accord and has no creativity unto himself. So mimicking that, taking Jesus up, this time he doesn't say, if you the Son of God. Why? Um, because he knows that at least in that realm, with the principalities and powers, as Paul will put in Ephesians, he's the prince of, that wor of the world. And so if you'll just praise me, then I'll give you all of that. I'm kind of the gatekeeper, right, um, in this fallen world that has fallen under his sway. And so as such, um, that temptation before Jesus uh, is equally as large. I mean, think about it. Why take 12 guys, and your number dwindles to zero the night before your death, when you could have all the popularity, fame, and, and acclamation of the world, why not start with the emperor of Rome and work your way down? I mean, most of us think of, like, you know, structures, and we say, well, it would be a top-down approach. He could have started with all the leaders of the world, all the, 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 the major players, won them over in his winsomeness, opened his mouth, and, and, and shown them the profound wisdom of God as God, and overturned empires and kingdoms. That's what the disciples thought he'd do. And in so doing, have this huge wave in effect. And yet, um, as Paul would write, it only comes almost like a seedling through death that life is given unto us. Again, Jesus does everything for our benefit. Before we get there, um, that temptation, um, if we could call it that, is one to be popular. We like to think as adults um, that we don't care what people think, and we have thick enough skin um, that we don't care about those things anymore, but we do. We often find ways to insulate our egos and, and find ways whereby we um, are both known and affirmed, and that's not bad, but when, when it comes to pride, even false pride uh, or false humility, which can be pride unto itself, um, we find these ways where we can fall into that trap. Um, time and time again. And what Jesus reminds us, which is similar to perfect trust, is that the way out is through praise. It's always the way out, by placing praise not on ourselves, glory for ourselves, feeding our own ego and well-being, but rather to praise God. And not just on Sundays, but um, in our thoughts, even when we do receive accolades to give God glory for that, to thank Him for the wisdom and the reason He's given us to to ask him what we're to do in those positions he's placed us, how to, in our vocations, um, shine forth for him, always for our sake. That's, I would say, arguably why Jesus chose 12, right? Um, he gave us a model that we could figure out. We could figure out how to gather a small group, and that's not as daunting. If the call was to reach the empires and presidents and kings and kingdoms, it'd be daunting. Yet Jesus shows us a way. A way whereby as we praise God and we gather faithfully with those in his name, that God can do incredible things. 
And so we're reminded in these, these are kind of the air we breathe culturally and, and not just culturally, but just in humanity. Uh, this desire to be productive and defining our worth and what we do, um, this, this inner turmoil of, of being in power and control, and then in so doing, kind of feeding our own ego of self and popularity. Those are things that we almost don't even think about because that's just what we see. That's the world in which we live, the air in which we breathe. So Jesus gives us a way out to say, in light of that, here's the way you combat that. Be present with God. Find your perfect trust in him in all circumstances and give him praise every chance you get. In so doing, it, it reforms us. It reminds us of our identity as believers in Christ Jesus. And as we walk throughout these 40 days together, it's our job um, as not just a, a team, but really as a, as a community, a community gathered around the person of Jesus to remind each other who we are in him who we are in him as sons and daughters of the living God, and to call one another toward that, call each other higher, so that we may pursue the upward call in Christ Jesus, so that not just for 40 days we, we go through this, but on the backside of it, we find the mechanisms in which we can continue to grow from strength to strength and be further conformed into the likeness of Jesus. So I bid you to keep a holy Lent and pray for you as you do so and ask your prayers for me of the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.